0: I wonder how you would answer the question if someone said to you, how do you measure your life? How do you know what the value of your life is? Do you measure it by success, by what you've achieved, or by what you have? How do you know what your value is as a human being? I wonder how you would answer that. You know, growing up in school, we learned this tool called compare and contrast. And we use it for a variety of things, right? Sometimes it's for sorting information. Sometimes it's for evaluating and assessing a situation. Sometimes it's to determine what course of action you're going to take or to give value, assign value to certain uh, things. And those tools are helpful to us in a lot of ways. Uh, But we're conditioned from early on to compare ourselves to others, We're conditioned to compare ourselves with our grades. We have a grading system. You can get an A or you can get an F, although I've noticed that they've taken out, at least at my son's middle school, Ds. You can't get a D. You go from A, B, C to failing, right? So I'm not sure how I feel about that. I kind of like that little wiggle room between F and C, but... um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so we compare there. We compare. I remember trying out for uh, sports teams in middle school, and you could either make the A team or the, the B team or no team. But usually if you didn't make the A team, everybody else made the B team, right? In uh, band and, and other uh, events, you're ranked by how well you play and, and how well you do on what those things. There's nothing inherently wrong in those things, The problem is they don't really tell us who we are. And sometimes we live as if they did. When we grow up, we're not necessarily taking tests or, or getting grades anymore, but we still compare ourselves to one another based on our possessions and our careers and our families, what our family life looks like, different from what others look like. We compare the gifts that we've been given. We compare even our spiritual journeys and, and where we are compared to where someone else Is And when we do that, when we compare and contrast our lives with that of others, sometimes it's in an effort to make us feel better about ourselves that usually ends up making us feel worse about ourselves. Because it's not really about what the other person has or doesn't have. It's not really about what they do or don't do. It really is internal. When we're doing that comparing thing, that contrasting thing, what we're comparing is what we see on the outside to what we feel on the inside. We're comparing a very curated image of what someone else portrays with who we know ourselves to be. It's, it's just... Uh, it, isn't comparable. You can't really compare your inside with their outside, and they're doing the same thing. Early on, we learn how to compare against and with others, and it follows us for most of our lives, often to the detriment of who we really are. And what if we stop doing that What if we stopped comparing ourselves to one another as a way to assess our worth and our value, or theirs for that matter, and simply allowed ourselves to be and believe that we are God's beloved children? This is out of 1 John, see what love the Father has given us. There's one translation that says, see what love the Father has lavished upon us. That we should be called children of God, and that is what we are, children of God. That's what we are right here, right now. I found this little meme the other day, right? Stop comparing yourself to others. We always have that er on the end, someone smarter or funnier or prettier or kinder, right? I am a beloved child of God, and you are a beloved child of God. We don't have to be better than or less than. We're awesome and also awesome, beloved and also beloved. I wonder how the world would change if we really believed and lived this truth. And how would it change how we see ourselves and how we see others? Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would open our ears to hear and our hearts to receive your word to us today, that it would take hold of us and transform us. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We continue in this series on some of Jesus' parables that turn the world upside down Tonight's comes, this first one comes out of Matthew 20. These texts are from the message translation. God's kingdom is like an estate manager who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. They agreed on a wage of a dollar a day and went to work. Later, about nine o'clock, the manager saw some other men hanging around the town square unemployed. He told them to go to work in his vineyard, and he would pay them a fair wage. They went. He did the same thing at noon and again at three o'clock. At five o'clock, he went back and found still others standing around. He said, why are you standing around all day doing nothing? They said, because no one hired us. He told them to go to work in his vineyard. When the day's work was over, The owner of the vineyard instructed his foreman, "'Call the workers in and pay them their wages. "'Start with the last hired and go on to the first. "'Those hired at five o'clock came up "'and were each given a dollar. "'When those who were hired first saw saw that, "'they assumed they would get far more. "'But they got the same, each of them one dollar. "'Taking the dollar, they groused angrily to the manager.' These last workers put in only one easy hour, and you just made them equal to us, who slaved all day under a scorching sun. He replied to the one speaking for the rest, "'Friend, I haven't been unfair. We agreed on the wage of a dollar, didn't we? So take it and go. I decided to give to the one who came last the same as you. Can't I do what I want with my own money?' Are you going to get stingy because I am generous? Here it is again, the great reversal. Many of the first ending up last and the last first. Now, this is not a parable that uh, is a prescription for good business practice, right? But that's not what Jesus was trying to convey to us. Jesus is giving us a picture of an extravagantly loving God, a God who constantly searches for those who aren't yet there, constantly searches for those who want to be part of the kingdom, God's kingdom, and to help build that kingdom, the God who wants everyone to have a chance, and the God who gives everyone who comes that chance. It is a God who delights in giving everyone, from those who have uh, been believers from the time they were born, to the ones who are brand new to the faith, to the ones who don't even yet know that the faith is where they long to be. He gives to each of those who come, He's willing to give to each of those who come the gift of eternal life and joy, abundant life and joy. And it all sounds great until we start looking around at when other people got here and at what other people have done. And we compare it to what we've done and how long we've been here, right? It all sounds great until we start calculating in our minds all the work that we've done and all the time we've put in. And here come some newcomers that get the same thing. They get the same eternal life the same joy of our relationship with God, the same mercy as we did. And we start comparing ourselves with one another. A- and we start lifting ourselves up, elevating ourselves into a place of trying to manage what God does or doesn't do with God's love and God's generosity. We get caught in that trap trap of comparison. And this kind of comparison only serves to steal our joy and our life. In John 10, you may remember Jesus talking about being the good shepherd. This is a continuation of that text. Jesus told this simple story, but they had no idea what he was talking about. So he tried again. I'll be explicit then. I am the gate for the sheep. All those others are up to no good. Sheep stealers, every one of them. But the sheep didn't listen to them. I am the gate. Anyone who goes through me will be cared for. Anyone who goes through me will be cared for. will freely go in and out and find pasture. A thief is only there to steal and kill and destroy. I came so that they can have real and eternal life, more and better life than they ever dreamed of. Real and eternal life, more and better life than they ever dreamed of, all out of the shepherd's care and love. There's no comparison. There's no test to take. There's no earning your way in. There's no need to compare yourself with anyone else coming through the gate. Real and eternal life, more and better than they ever dreamed of. For each one who comes, whenever that one comes. There's no need in the kingdom of God to compare ourselves to anyone else. And yet we do. And that's one thief that threatens to steal our joy in our life. And honestly, if you look at the the bigger picture of the the people of the church and, and how the outside, how people outside the church see us, think about what they see. Do they see us loving each other? Do they see us living with joy and gratitude? Or do they see us clamoring for a position at the top? Or arguing over who's right and who's wrong? Or making sure we have enough before we take care of anyone else? You know, when we are part of the church, we are kind of insulated, I think, to what the world sees. It's hard when you're in the midst of it to to have eyes to see. But, But when the world looks at the church... Do they they see us as one body, or do they see us as ones who are comparing and contrasting our lives with one another and trying to figure out how, how we come out on top? That's not to say that everybody in the church is doing that. I'm just, it's curious to me about what the world and those who are watching us, what they might actually say. About what they see in us, there's no need for us to outstatus one another or to outperform one another. You know, there's this—it's an age-old problem. We all know what that looks like to to be uh, ones who are pushed to achieve and accomplish and and be better than. That's part of how this uh, nation is formed right we're achieving we're performing we we do things to uh to create a great place for all of us but sometimes that gets in the way when we use that to decide that that's our value or that that's our worth or it's someone else's value or worth and social media quite frankly makes it worse right Because we are maybe at home or somewhere looking at our our phone or on our computer, our tablet, and we are sitting in the midst of our messy, chaotic, crazy life. And what we're looking at is what someone's posted that is their very curated image of their vacation and their home and their children who are more successful than your children will ever be, right? And, And what we're holding on to, we're comparing our life with what someone else has posted, it'll never be the same. And yet we cling to that for value and worth. We compare what we see and we think we're missing out. <clears throat> we think if we could just have what they have or be where they are or have the opportunities that, that they have or have the, the right family or the right house or the right opportunity, that that we would be better, that our life would be better, would be fuller, would be right. And the truth is that that's just not right. That's just not true. It's just not true. First of all, no one's life is perfect. And this is sometimes where it's hard in the church too, because we still, uh, to some extent, we get to church And when we get out of the car, we put on whatever mask we need to put on in order to come in and be okay. To come in and present ourselves as having everything together, right? And the truth is, none of us really do. No one has a perfect life. And secondly, our value and worth can never be determined by our posts on social media or by how we present ourselves By what we have or don't have, by what we do or don't do, our value and worth is found only in being beloved children of God, heirs of God's kingdom. Sometimes the comparison for us is related to what someone else has that we don't, what their possessions or or power or a position, but sometimes it's about pride. Sometimes it's about pride rooted in who we are and where we think we stand Jesus has a different story in Luke 18. He told his next story to some who were complacently pleased with themselves over their moral performance and looked down their noses at the common people. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax man. The Pharisee posed and prayed like this. "O oh God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Robbers, crooks, adulterers, or heaven forbid, like this tax man, I fast twice a week and tithe on all my income. Meanwhile the taxman slumped in the shadows, his face in his hands, not daring to look up, said, God give mercy, forgive me a sinner. Jesus commented, This taxman, not the other, went home made right with God. If you walk around with your nose in the air, you're going to end up flat on your face. But if you're content to be simply yourself, you will become more than yourself. Have you ever said this or thought this? Have you ever thought, most of us wouldn't say it out loud, I don't think. Thank God I'm not like him, right? Thank God oh, thank God I'm not like that person, right? You can fill in the blank because I, I suspect that all of you have someone or some group of people that you could use to fill in the blank. And maybe it's not uh, the robbers and the crooks and the adulterers. Maybe, maybe, that's not, maybe it's okay because you're, you're confident in who you are. But, but what if it's people like this? Paul's writing to the Galatians and he's writing about being uh, driven by the flesh or, or led by the spirit. He's talking about how we're, we live in this fallen world, in this broken world, and, and often our, the desires of the flesh are what drive us and motivate us Different. From the spirit of God. And and so this is part of that. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. Oh, thank God I'm not like those people. Right? If that's too much for you, then, then what about, thank God I'm not like so and so. She's so arrogant or so dumb or so hypocritical or so stubborn or so dramatic. We, we have all sorts of uh, language tools that allow us to translate these negative things into words that are acceptable but still aren't right. All of these things are translated, thank God I'm better than that. And that hurts. To own that. I love the way the message says, if your nose is in the air, you will end up flat on your face. Now, on the other hand, have you ever uh, thought, well, you know, thank God I'm not like the Pharisee in that story, right? But you understand, right, as soon as you say that, you're in the same trap, right? You're in the same trap. My grandmother used to say, uh, Tom's grandmother used to tell him this too, so I think it was maybe a generational thing at some point. If you're pointing your finger at someone, make sure you look and see how many fingers are pointing back at you, right? Did y'all hear that too, right? But the, and maybe maybe it's not generational at all. Maybe it's just true. Maybe it just is the way things are. If we're pointing out someone else's issues or flaws or or how much better they are, how much worse they are, there's still three fingers pointing back at us. The truth is we all need Jesus. The Pharisee and the tax collector and the robbers and the murderers and all the people engaged in behaviors that Paul talks about in Galatians 5. We all need grace. We need to forget about comparing ourselves with one another and stand with hands wide open, drenched in God's grace, God's generous love for us, the grace of God that is mercy for all of us, for those who know that we need it the most, and for those who think we need it the least. God's mercy is for all of us. If you go back to that story out of Matthew 20, uh, right, that The story about the the vineyard and and the workers, and uh, most of us read that story, and we would would join in with those workers who got there early. And we said, well, that's not fair, right? That is not fair. And the truth is, if you're paying attention to the story, what you know is that it's not unfair. It's not unfair at all. No one was underpaid, It's just that some were paid more generously, more unreasonably generously than others. And that's what the kingdom of God is like, is what Jesus is saying in that story. The owner of the vineyard wasn't being unfair to the people who worked from the beginning of the day. Even what he paid them by giving them work could be considered extravagantly generous. No one was underpaid. It just seems that some were paid unreasonably generously. Once again, Jesus is turning it all upside down. I I wonder if Jesus is doing the same in our time and our culture, asking us to to have things flipped upside down again from what we have assumed and, and what we have taken on in terms of our culture and, and what believe what we believe because grace isn't fair actually it's generous grace isn't fair it's generous to all you know sometimes we're the ones that show up early and sometimes we're the ones who show up late sometimes we are the Pharisee and sometimes we're the tax collector sometimes we demand fairness When we think we deserve more than another, sometimes we beg for mercy when we know that we deserve less. God doesn't ask us to compare ourselves to others to decide that we're better or worse than someone else. Because God doesn't compare us with others. God doesn't see us through the eyes of anyone else except Jesus. God sees us through the eyes and the life of Christ, not anyone else. And through the eyes and the life of Christ, we are beloved children. Each of us. We are forgiven. We are given abundant life, now and eternal. God never sets us up to compare ourselves to one another. We do that. And God invites us to let go of doing that. And know that we are seen and loved in Christ. Fully loved and fully known in Christ. The real thief that comes in the night is thinking that we're more than we really are. And or believing that we're less than we really are. And allowing that conclusion to determine our value and our worth. Henry Nowen was a Catholic priest, um, a theologian, an author. Uh, we use I turn to him a lot for spiritual direction and, and wisdom. And this is one of his quotes. <clears throat> Over the years, I've come to realize that the greatest trap in our life is not success, popularity, or power, but self-rejection. Success, popularity, and power can indeed present a great temptation, but their seductive quality often comes from the way they are part of the much larger temptation to self-rejection. When we have come to believe in the voices that call us worthless and unlovable, then success, popularity, and power are easily perceived as attractive solutions. The real trap, however, is... Self-rejection, as soon as someone accuses me or criticizes me, as soon as I am rejected, left alone, or abandoned, I find myself thinking, well, that proves once again that I am nobody. My dark side says I am no good. I deserve to be pushed aside, forgotten, rejected, and abandoned. Self-rejection is the greatest enemy of the spiritual life because it contradicts the sacred voice that calls us the beloved. Being the beloved constitutes the core truth of our existence. Most of us can identify with that on one level, and maybe we can identify that in trying to understand that when, when we're the ones that are pushing other people out or criticizing or speaking uh, words of uh, of unworth to someone else or about someone else, that's equally a rejection of who we are as created and loved by God, as God's beloved. If, if we know that we are God's beloved, then we allow others to be God's beloved as well. Paul writes to the Romans, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, Father, It is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God and have children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. What more could we want? Nothing that we can achieve or have in the world, nothing that anyone else has that we don't can possibly measure up to this. Beloved children of God, heirs of the kingdom, heirs of everything that God has, is ours because God gives it to us generously, extravagantly, out of God's love. If we know this, then that changes everything because we can live in that generosity and we can extend that generosity. We can be our authentic selves before God and with one another. And we can let others be authentic as well. We don't have to pretend to be someone we aren't. And we don't have to ask anyone else to be someone they aren't. The thing is that we can either be a conduit of God's generosity and God's love. We can either offer ourselves to be an instrument and a vessel and a conduit of that love. Or we can try to stand in the way. But we're not going to be able to stop the generosity of God from getting to the people that God loves. From getting to each of us, it will just flow around us. Because we're not big enough or great enough to stop God's love for ourselves Or for anyone else. We can't determine how God offers it or to whom. We can only decide if we are going to receive it. And live from it. And offering it to one another. This week, I know, I I can guarantee you. That you're going to walk out of here. Maybe it won't happen tonight. Maybe you're filled up tonight. And so what other people are doing and what other people have, it's not going to bother you tonight. But I suspect that as the week goes on, you will be tempted to compare yourself to someone else. For better or for worse, right? You'll be tempted to point the finger at someone else. An actual finger or in your mind. Thank God I'm not them. Thank God I'm not like that. Right? Right? So I want to challenge you this week as that happens, as you're tempted to compare yourself with what someone else has or doesn't have or what they do or don't do. I'm going to challenge you to just stop in that moment. And whether it's literal or figuratively, open up your hand and understand that God's mercy and God's love is Poured lavishly upon us. And when we'll stop pointing fingers. We can receive it. And we can offer it. And in that way. It really doesn't matter who got here first. Or who comes last. (laughs) And that way we all. Receive. The mercy and the grace. Of God as ones who are God's beloved. Let us pray. Lord, we're so grateful for your love for us. And we confess that we stand in need of that love. That we need your mercy, probably especially when we think we need it the least, is when we need it the most. We pray, Lord, that you would do a mighty work by the power of your spirit in us and through us and among us in this community of faith. That we would live as ones who choose to love, who choose to be instruments of your generosity, instruments of your grace, rather than trying to stand in the way. Help us be so secure in being your beloved children that we don't become worried or anxious about how well you love others. Let us Oh, God, be a part of that. Help us be willing to see where Jesus is turning our world upside down, inviting us into the hard truth of who we are and into the ridiculous grace of who you are and how you love us. Lord, help us to stop pointing fingers and instead open our hands to receive the fullness of your love for us and offer that same love to one another. We pray that you would do this work in us and that we would know it without a doubt as we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.